This is The Other 14 Podcast. And welcome to episode three of the Other 14 podcast for the 2022-23 Premier League season. And after game week two, we have Brentford in the top four fighting for Champions League football. It's all buzzing down at the community stadium. We talk this shocking result and all others in this week's episode. As always, we're joined by Tom. Hello. Hello, Tom. And we've had another fantastic week of Premier League football featuring the other 14. It really has backed up what was an explosive week one. We've obviously got the fantastic result from Brentford and many others to talk about. How did you think this week went? Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Reese. Um, yeah, I thought game week was really good. A lot of quality on show uh, from all of the other 14. Uh, obviously, we had the incredible results at the uh, community stadium in Brentford. And... As I said, really fantastic signs going into the new campaign that this is going to be another one for the ages. Yeah, absolutely. We've had some, and we've had teams back up their game week one performances with solid game week two performances with Brighton, Leeds and Newcastle joining Brentford on being unbeaten. Can we have another Invincibles from maybe the other 14? We can only live in hope, Reese. Oh, and I should mention at this point, Fulham are also undefeated. However, they are currently sitting at a tidy 12th in mid-table with just the two points. I mean, Arsenal drew a lot of games that year, so you know what? Why not? Mitrovic just needs to channel his inner Henri and then maybe they'll get there. And over to the classified results with Tom. And here are the classified results of match week two of the Premier League 22-23 season. Aston Villa 2, Everton 1. 4. Leicester City, 2. Brian Havalbian, nil. Newcastle United, nil. 4. AFC Bournemouth, nil. Southampton, 2. Leeds United, 2. Wolverhampton Wanderers, nil. Fulham, nil. Brentford, 4. Nil. Nottingham Forest, 1. West Ham United, nil. 1. Crystal Palace, one. So let's get straight into it. We've mentioned them a couple of times already. Brentford on the uh, on the evening kickoff on Saturday. Manu were visiting. Manu not looking strong after their poor performance against Brighton. And wow, once again, they looked poor. And another outstanding effort from the other fourteen to really humble them. Yeah, I think United were very much rushing out of London after that performance. What you can say about Brentford apart from amazing. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of talk about how poor United have been. And that is, there is some truth in that. But I don't think Brentford have got enough praise for what they were doing. Their press was unbelievable. The energy constant throughout the whole game. And to be 4-0 up inside 35 minutes, I bet a lot of the fans there were pinching themselves thinking they were... (laughs) It wasn't real and they were still dreaming. Absolutely. And I think this is what Thomas Frank highlighted in his uh, post-match comments was basically trying to say that he hopes people recognise what Brentford have done as opposed to what United didn't or lacked. And you know what? We will credit the other 14 because here at the other 14 podcast, that's what we're all about. Brentford, hats off to you, Thomas Frank. We love you. 
And I really think the epitome of the press was highlighted by the performance from Jensen. He really dominated Ericsson in that role, particularly for the second goal. The way he pressed and got right on his shoulder, it was a poor ball into Ericsson. He couldn't do much, but Jensen showed in there everything that Brentford aren't missing by Ericsson going to United. No, absolutely not. And I think it basically epitomised what we can expect really from this Brentford side. You know, high energy at the community stadium again, really lively, busy, hardworking, you know, as a team pressing together, Jensen just anticipating that uh, mistake from Ericsson and latched onto it. And I think as a team, the way they worked together as a machine was so spot on. The way they were pressing, they all knew the signal when to push and they all pushed at the same time. It wasn't like they gave Manu an easy out at any point and it was fantastic to see. And also them all being on that kind of synergistic level of knowing exactly where everyone's going to be at every point. And I think that was highlighted in the fourth goal, the counter-attack. They won it in their own penalty area pretty much. And then immediately a long ball was played down the left-hand side into the channel where Tony was already on his bike, played a simple ball across and Mbwemo there was streets ahead of Luke Shaw and put it past a struggling De Gea. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Really strong performance. That first time, I think it was the first time ball from Tony after yeah. the long ball. And played it straight into Mbomo. Just that link-up play was outstanding. And, you know, we looked at that last game week with how Brighton set up at Old Trafford. And as a collective of the other 14, that's how sometimes you can sort of be criticised a little bit as another 14 team about how you play. If you want to play in the right manner, play your own style, you can sometimes come a little bit unstuck. But... The way Brighton showed and the way Brentford has showed in these first two game weeks shows exactly, I know it has been against United and it has been a struggling side, but that is the blueprint really of how a team can express themselves. Absolutely. And I know in the past teams have often been fearful of playing United and to an extent they're not anymore and it could be said for against any of uh, the big six teams don't need to be scared of them they don't need to sit off all the time and just try and absorb the pressure admittedly Brighton did that at the right times they absorbed the pressure from the United and then hit them but Brentford showed how just be on the front foot pressure 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 they could see how United trying this well many times trying to play it out from the back De Gea passing it short to Maguire and then they quickly ran out of ideas and Brentford capitalised on that magnificently by being right on their shoulder every time and forcing a change of possession. And it paid off for them massively. And I think it's probably one of the best, well, it's very early on to say, but it's a fantastic pressing performance. And I think we'll be hard pushed to see one as good as that this season. Yeah, completely great. And, you know, it shows as a team how well drilled you can be as a unit. Thomas Frank, huge props but you've got to be sensible about it. And I think Brentford really showed that they did. Obviously, it's not going to come off every week, but to go down in history, as to put in one of those sort of sensational performances, you know, that's going to be a performance that Brentford fans are going to be delightful and sort of dreaming about for years to come, saying, you know, if you were there, I was there when, you know, Brentford score, scored four in 35 minutes against Manchester United. You know, that that is exactly what we want to see. You've got to be sensible about it, but... It's sensation when it comes off. It's not going to come off every week, but when it does, bliss. Oh, it definitely adds to the memories. And it's funny how you mention history because it's interesting how history repeats itself. The last time Brentford had a home league win against Man United was in 1936, and okay. it was also and it was also a four nil win. 
I love it. I love it. So, admittedly, they've been many divisions between each other for many years, but now Brentford are up there. Uh, maybe every year they'll be backing for a 4 0 win because they've uh, yep. got history now. Exactly. That's the right of being one of these sort of understudies or un- underdogs in the Premier League. You live for these sort of moments, and that's exactly what Brentford got on Saturday. So fair play to them. Exactly. And I think we are realistic in that the other 14 clubs we're not going to be challenging for titles all the time like Leicester was an absolute fluke in 15-16 brilliant fluke but it was still there was an alignment of the stars and some sort of divine intervention and then very rarely are the domestic cups ever won by a team outside the big six once again Leicester did that um, just a couple years ago in the FA Cup but I think you're exactly right in that it's then these victories that produce the memories and that's what creates fans because if that's one of your first games you go to if you're a new season ticket holder your first time at the community stadium this year and you've gone and watched that it very rarely gets better as a fan but no well realistically and I hope it does happen but realistically Brentford aren't going to go and win a trophy this season but they will always now have that time they turned over at Manchester United the biggest team in world football as they like to say and with the the star that is the Ronaldo, supposedly the greatest of all time, and he barely had a sniff himself, and it just goes very to show a very shoppy performance, a very shoppy performance, and I think that really highlights the difference in the teams. In that Ronaldo comes in and he's very much trying to take the game himself on, and he's very much focused on his own performance rather than as the collective. And Brentford are the complete opposite to that, or were the complete opposite to that on Saturday. And they signed Damsgaard this week, who was um, Ericsson's successor in the Denmark team. He didn't even, he wasn't even on the pitch. He wasn't even bought on. He wasn't even used. So I think that goes to show how Thomas Frank trusts his men. He trusts that they know the system. He trusts that they will fight for each other. And then you really do have to earn your place in the team. And hopefully Damsgaard will get an opportunity soon. He's a quality player. But at this point, Brentford don't need to make any changes to their starting eleven because it's clearly a winning formula. No, absolutely not. You know, four points from six. You know, they drew that game against Leicester in match week one and then obviously turned over United in the second match week. You can't really ask for a better start than that. No. In our previous show, I think we mentioned that they might get one result. So there's that to go there. Like I said, they're not always going to get those sort of performances week in, week out. It's not always going to come off. You're going to come across teams that are a little bit more up to scratch with how to play against a fast press. But if Brentford, we've talked about second season syndrome with Brentford, from the outset, it doesn't seem like that's going to be affecting them whatsoever. And if Tom Frank can keep that sort of group together as a chemistry, as a whole bond, as a synergy, as you've mentioned, then Brentford are looking for a pretty good season. And you're right. We did mention would second season syndrome creep in at all, but four points from two games, they definitely look like at this point they'll be fighting for mid-table. And if they keep up these performances, they absolutely will be at a minimum. I think the only thing we can say at this point is that I think Manchester United are quite grateful that uh, neither Bristol City or Bristol Rovers are in the Premier League and part of the other 14 because they're not too good against BR teams, are they? No. Will they play Leicester soon? Up against Brendan Rodgers? Well... They're also glad that Blackburn Rovers aren't about either then. Hey, oh. <laughs> and speaking of Brendan Rodgers, 
it was another performance Leicester may want to forget about. 4-2 loss at the Emirates, which Arsenal are playing well, uh, but Leicester, it's not looking great. Still no signings of outfield players yet this transfer window. And there are still more transfer rumours about Fafana maybe leaving to Chelsea, Tielemans maybe leaving to Arsenal, and Madison maybe going to Newcastle. And then also there's been a link today that Manchester United are interested in Vardy. They've already lost Schmeichel, which I do think is a big loss for them because he was a leader in that team. And if they lose even one or two of those players that I've just mentioned, it's still not going to look promising for them because they're not going to be able to replace them like for like anytime soon, are they? No, absolutely not. And, you know, you mentioned those. We, we sort of look back on Leicester from their league winning campaign in 15-16, the likes of Schmeichel, Vardy. They were always going to have to at some point replace those. And it felt like that, that was coming in and Brendan Rodgers was putting his own sort of spin on the side. He brought in Tiedemans. I think Madison was his sign. Was that pre? Was that prior? I, I, I don't think it was his, but he's obviously made Madison, or not sorry, made Madison, but he's used Madison quite well to Leicester's advantage. Then if you lose some of those players, that's just where did Leicester go? You know, the, the the whole sort of image and the whole sort of structure of that squad suddenly becomes, nah, it sort of loses its shape. Well, it loses that bit of fire and that little bit of special sprinkle that you'd uh, yeah. that, the little bit of uh, stardust that they have in that Leicester squad. I mean they, yeah Tigman's goal in the FA Cup final you look at that. that that's a bit of a magical moment and they could lose that you know it's where do they go? Exactly and they've had Vardy consistently being a goal scorer in the Premier League he's been pretty consistent even when he's had seasons where he's had spells being injured he always gets goals and they have tried replacing him or bringing in players that can take that burden of um, scoring goals. They've bought in Pats and Daka, they've bought in Kalichi and Nacho, but they haven't really struck gold yet. And as you say, Tielemans, we thought, oh, what a perfect replacement um, for Can- in the middle of the park. Different style, but they had Kante. They then bought in Tielemans and he's been absolutely fantastic for them. And then Madison adopting that creative role that they had previously in their midfields and going forwards, kind of not quite a Marezzi role, but that kind of brings that kind of flair play and that creativity. And then Fafana, if they lose him at the back, their centre-back options are looking pretty poor. And against Arsenal, he definitely, the performance Fafana put in definitely screamed, look at me, I'm a good footballer his darting weaving run that he made ending up in a goal scoring opportunity is really quite a dreary outlook for Leicester if they don't do something quickly oh absolutely right and we looked also at Danny Ward coming in as well um, between the sticks uh, replacing Schmeichel ex-Liverpool player I know him quite well he looked assured when he was making starts for Liverpool on the odd occasion that he did he got a move I think it was to Huddersfield in their penalty shootout victory in the playoff final. He made some key saves, obviously, in the penalty shootout there. Became a hero for them. Got a move to Leicester. Is consistently in the Wales side. But you don't want to be making a mistake like he did at the weekend. That is just not going to help his case whatsoever to try and be sort of instrumental in uh, in between the posts. Exactly. And Brendan Rodgers seems to be pretty certain that he doesn't want to sign a goalkeeper. He seems quite confident in the two that he has. But the performance that Ward put in 
didn't really repay that confidence. The way he came out to collect that cross and only got really half a glove on it. He called it. His defender stepped away from the ball and then he parried it down to Jesus, who just had a nice, easy pass into Xhaka, who rolled it into the back of the net quite simply. Admittedly, I don't think he could have done much from any of the other goals. Um, I think Jesus' first was a bit of a deflection oh, there. sensational. It did take a slight deflection, did it not? I thought it came off one of the players near him and it kind of added a little bit more loop. I wasn't sure on it, but just you know he that's what he was trying to do in the first place. So if it took a deflection, it took a deflection. Yeah. But I don't think either way that's there's much that Danny Walker has done there. No. I yeah, I don't think that he was really at fault for that, but it was pretty poor. That one for the error he made for Jacques's goal. But they going forward, they did have opportunities. They got two goals. Which yep. was which really good from them. You Madis- say really good though. You, you know, you've got a bit of a comical own goal from the uh, Arsenal centre back. It was kind of well worked through the middle, and then Madison's goal. Ramsdale should be doing so much better with that. So it's not by cutting Arsenal apart, but a little bit of fortune is in there. So they're not up to full speed yet in terms of their forward and attacking play, but there are signs that it's getting there. No, but I think there's maybe some reason to be positive because ultimately it doesn't matter how the goals go in, if they go in. And Arsenal are being tipped to be that team that gets that third space behind City and Liverpool. To go away and score two goals, I still think is a good effort for them. And I think that maybe does give Leicester fans a little bit of hope that maybe against another team, they might have been able to score more. Admittedly, at the back, it's not looking good, but going forward, it... There's not, there's not reasons to be completely sad. Oh no, no. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I, yeah, I still, still, I'm not, I'm not saying that Leicester didn't deserve their goals because they obviously found a way to get back into the game. What Leicester fans will be most disappointed with is the fact that their side just kept shooting themselves in the foot. You know, they were two 0 down. They get back to two one, and then Ward makes a mistake and it goes to three one. They get back to was it three two, and then immediately afterwards, Arsenal get a fourth. So you know you're getting back into the game, and you're most susceptible. Football cliche time. You're most susceptible to conceding a goal after you've just scored, and Leicester showed that. So that you know footballing one one there. I think you're right. I was maybe just trying to be a bit positive for Leicester fans because I don't think there's much reason to be positive at the moment. I'm not calling for his head at all um, because I think he's done a fantastic job there, and quite clearly the resources haven't been provided as investment into that squad. But does Brendan Rodgers have reason to be worried slightly? And do Leicester fans have reason to be worried as well? I think it really depends on what, as a Leicester fan, you're expecting from this season. Obviously, they didn't have the greatest of campaigns last year. They are... If you're a Leicester fan who's listening to the pod at the moment, please, by all means, get in contact with us. But from the outside, looking in... They've obviously got this new um, renovation of the King Power coming out, coming along. Is that affecting some business in the into the transfer market? Are the owners looking for a season where they're more stable in the Premier League and then sort of build a new squad and then maintain that the years after? Or you know, if it is not the case, then you know what is going on? I, I really don't get it. I don't get where Leicester are going. No, and yeah, I completely get that. Are there other business decisions that are affecting their squad? I think that's the case. 
And then, yeah, I think the question is there, what is a Leicester fan's expectations for the season? And as you say, by all means, do let us know what your expectations are for the season, any Leicester fans. Because from my point of view, there have been some very good seasons for Leicester um, winning the league. And from that, they've been up and around there. They've been pretty much up in there most of the time, fighting for a European place. Last season, they just missed out on that. But still a good season, considering the amount of injuries they had. Pretty much their star centre-back, Fafana, was out for most of the season, if not all of it. Their right-back, Pereira, was out for most of it as well. I'd be intrigued to know what their expectations are, because for me, I'd like to think that they would at least be having a team that would be competitive enough to match last year's performance barring any injuries or significant injuries. So staying kind of in that top 10, because I think we say one to six, probably normally taken, mm. yeah. although we hope that's not the case. Yeah, but then it's that seven, eight, nine, ten 10 position where I think Leicester fans probably should be aiming because they do have quality that can get them there. But I do think they need additions to definitely get there because I think there are a lot of teams... Oh well, I think there are fewer bad teams in the league this season compared to last, and I don't think that top ten position is guaranteed for them. And I don't think there's any birthright there of going. We we were Premier League champions. We have finished up here previously. They are going to really need to fight for it, and it's whether not getting that and not finishing the top ten is good enough for them and good enough for Leicester fans. Maybe, yeah, maybe I was being a little bit harsh in terms of. You know, Leicester's injury history over the past sort of couple of seasons, they have been inundated with a lot of injuries. That has really affected the performance of the squads. Vardy has not always been available when needed. You know, whenever he does play, he still shows that energy and that drive that he always has. You know, he, he looks like he plays with being sort of tanked up by about a thousand Red Bulls whenever he plays. Um, but yeah, I, also sort of looking back at how in terms of on, on, on the business aspects as well, not previous season, but the previous two seasons, when they in the Champions League spots for, you know, pretty much the majority of the season and then just at the end, just dropped out. That must affect a lot in terms of what the owners were looking financially planning because that Champions League money is huge for a club like Leicester. Has that had an effect? I, I don't know. So, you know, if... If you are a Leicester fan, please do get in contact because we, we want to know what's happening. I think probably there is some sort of cumulative disappointment of because once you're up there, once you've experienced the real highs, then to drop out slowly. Yeah. But then again, Leicester fans are probably the envy of the fans for the other yeah. 13 teams because they're on the blueprint. Well, exactly. Well, they definitely were. And for sure, I think every other fan is looking at them going, well, they've won the Premier League and the FA Cup in the last six years. Yeah. How can we do that? Because it's like, it is an incredible performance to win two major trophies like that is unbelievable. And I think every other club, uh, well, let's be honest, even Tottenham fans would be jealous of Leicester right now because they've won some trophies. Yeah. So, but you know, you know, We'll wait and see. It is very early on. Yeah. Hopefully, still two weeks left of the transfer window, they can they can spend some money. And I don't think necessarily the owners have been shy in spending money in the past. I suppose it's just what are they spending the money on? You're right. Exactly. King power yeah. um, improvements. And also think they've invested a lot into their training facilities as well. So 
which shows good management at the end of the day. So oh, it does. Investing there's nothing in that wrong level with the of, owners there at all. Exactly. Investing in that level of long term infrastructure is better than spending twenty million on one player. Well, twenty million doesn't really get you much on a player these days, but it might just uh, be short term pain for long term gain. So it is only two game game weeks into the season. It's still very early days. So by all means, nothing is sort of written in stone yet. So we'll just see how it goes from here. Yeah. Um, but it has been a disappointing start. It has. And Sunday afternoon bought us the Stuart Pearce derby with the two o'clock kickoff, with Forest getting their first win in the Premier League since the 16th of May 1999, which at the time was a 1-0 win at home against Leicester with Chris Bart-Williams getting the winner. However, on Sunday, Tayo Awani scored the first goal for Forest back in the Premier League. It wasn't a masterpiece, nor will young Forest fans be creating it in their back gardens or on the school playground, but they got all three points. But was there an element of luck for them to get all three points? Yeah, I, th- I think you can say definitely for sure that their goal was rather fortuitous. But will Forest fans care? No. No. You know, first game back in the Prem, well, for the first home game back in the Prem for 23 years. City ground was bouncing. It was full of excitement, full of expectation. And yeah, and when he sort of bundles it in, but and you say that kids might not necessarily recreate it, but it's one that they'll have in their back pockets and one that they'll remember for a long, long time to come because what that means for Forest is huge. You know, they're back in the big time. They've got three points in a game fairly early on in the, the season. It's not like they're going to wait and wait and wait and wait for that first win. It's come and now they can sort of go on into the next games with the same sort of expectation of hope. You're absolutely right. The first three points for any newly promoted side is incredibly significant in the Premier League. It really does give them that confidence boost. Reaffirms that they are in the league and they can fight in the league and they can win in the league. Even if it wasn't a masterpiece of a goal, they won't care. You're correct. They'll probably score much better going forward in the season, or hopefully they will, because fans won't be entertained if they if every goal is deflected, bounced Bundles. off the shin. Wasn't even a bundle. I don't even think he really knew what was happening. It kind of flicked off of Ben Johnson's foot and straight onto his knee. And Fabian limbs are all that matters, Reese. Limbs are all that matter. Exactly, it's all that matters. I think the fans in the ground will not care one bit, but I do think they were watching the 11 Forest players out there, but also Lady Luck. I can't look... (laughs) Not one that they've reported on Sky Sports News. Not that they would because it's a Forest signing and it isn't a loose link for Arnautovic going to Man U. But they were incredibly lucky. They could have been walking away from that game with a 3-1 loss, a 4-1 loss. West Ham were incredibly unlucky. They had... Two really good efforts come off the underside of the crossbar and bounce on the line. They had a goal disallowed, which I do think probably was right in being disallowed, but I do think it could have also been given the other way. They then have a clearance off the line, a goal line stop, which once again, I think the player blocking it on the line didn't quite know what was happening. Nico Williams, fantastic player. I've said this before. uh, All right. And then they also conceded a penalty where their defender blatantly handles the ball in the penalty area to stop a clear goal-scoring opportunity, and he's only given a yellow card. I don't understand 
the referee's process in only giving a yellow card for that because it was a blatant handball and we expect a bit better or at least some justification to why a certain decision was made. Yeah, I, looking at it, the Henderson for the for the handball that you've mentioned uh, that led to the West Ham penalty being given. Yes, absolutely definite penalty. Not denying that 100%. However, in terms of the red card, he's not... Henderson, if, if the defender isn't there, Henderson saves that. The way he was playing, Henderson saves it. He's not stop- The defender isn't stopping the ball from going into the back of the net. But he's denying... Because an... firstly, there's no guarantee Henderson was getting to it. Yes, he was playing well, but there's no guarantee he was definitely going to... Okay, so... Reece, it was straight at him. No... He was diving, he was having to move across. Okay, that justification, though, doesn't really stand up if you're saying he's having, because he's having a good game. So are you saying that if that happened in the first minute of the game, we haven't seen Henderson make a save yet, so therefore we'll give it as a red card because Henderson, we don't know how he's going to play. He might have parried it into the back of his own net. Yes and no. I see what you're getting at. I I think the the shot is well hit. The keeper's having to move behind. You're right. He could have definitely punched it away and gone out for a corner. But also, it might have it was, it, spun so, off, off his hands and gone into the back of the net. It was a, it was Suchek's header, wasn't it? No, it was a shot. It wasn't a header. It was a... He right. actually kicked it. Like, it, the ball had pace on it. And I don't know. I do get... He's, he's, his arm definitely makes a move down towards the, the ball. I'll give you that. That is but that I, that I, is incredibly blatant. Yes. That's a, that's a blatant handball. I don't think it can be classified as denying a clear goal scoring opportunity. But when a player is through one on one with a keeper and they're brought down by a player, that's called a could yeah. that's that's denying an obvious goal scoring. Like, don't get me wrong, I think Henderson probably would have made the save. I just don't know where the where the consistent implementation of the rules is in that I don't know of a rule where it goes, oh, well, you know, the keeper might have got to the shot, so we're not going to give it. The same way as if Suchek's shot was going wide, do you then not give the red card? Do you only give a yellow because you're going, oh, well, the shot's going wide? I think the the, the crime is the player blatantly moved his hand towards the ball thinking the ball was going in the back of the net and he stopped it with a part of his body that he shouldn't. So I don't really get the logic behind it. But then fundamentally, it doesn't matter as much because Rice then produced an absolutely dreadful penalty and pretty much passed it straight to Henderson. But still playing against 10 men for that final period of the time would have made a significant difference for Forrest and West Ham in that game. And for me... I just think, once again, it is very lucky for Forrest to get the three points. But not taking away, they did they did play well, but I just don't know how all the luck went in their favour that game. So, you know how I love Ref Watch? You do love Ref Watch with Dermot Gallagher. I've heard he's a big fan of the podcast and we're dying to get you on, Dermot. Do, uh, do Dermot. hit us up. Um, the other 14 pod at gmail.com. So, do you want to know what, what Dermot says? What did Dermot, Dermot. say? So... We're talking about, obviously, again, the incident. Scott McKenna booked for handball to give West Ham a penalty. Could have been given a red card. VAR does really well. It is not the denial of a goal. 
This is what Dermot says directly. This is what VAR is all about. The, the ref doesn't see it, but he clearly handballs it. The goalkeeper is also diving for the ball. So as the goalkeeper is diving uh, behind, it's not necessarily the denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. He thinks it's the perfect scenario of what VAR is there for. Had the goalkeeper not been there, it would have been a red card. But because the goalkeeper was there, from a VAR's perspective, it can only be given as a yellow. Okay, that's that's fine justification. So as long as every player that's brought down by a defender one-on-one with the keeper, it's only a yellow card because the keeper's going to save it every time. Yep. So the keeper's this... still in the way between the ball and the goal. The keeper's going to save it. It's fine. So, yellow yeah, card. Th- this is the consistency, I think, that we're looking out for for VAR. Exactly. And... It's all well, we need to well, know what we need to know. Well, it's also it's all well and good Dermot coming out as an ex-referee. And I feel at times he tries to justify a certain decision. Sometimes he is critical of decisions, but sometimes he is trying to almost back up the decisions that the referees have made. It would just be good. And I know this isn't the first case of it, and it won't be the last case, but of refs needing to justify their decision. And that's why I think, like with cricket, you have the off off-field umpires mic'd up same with rugby you have them mic'd up and they talk about the decision through the decision because for any West Ham fan watching that they will be going well it should have been a red card and West Ham should have been playing for over 15 minutes against 10 men and you would have thought the result would be different after that yeah I get the frustration and uh, it also raised you raise a really good point about hearing referees decision making process and having that or hearing that communication as a fan, not just not necessarily on TV, but if you're also at the ground as well, hearing that communication between Stockley Park and the VAR about what decision-making process is going into looking into incidents. Why is it that we have cricket, rugby, um, a whole host of American sports that are able to do this? Yeah, football, one of the big, if not the biggest sport in the world, doesn't have this. And it just causes upset fans who then lose even more confidence in refereeing decisions. Uncertainty and unhappiness breeds more uncertainty. And as soon as you start having people being unhappy with referees' decisions, then they're going to just... It's a horrible world. Refs do get a huge amount of abuse. Even if they make the right call, they do. But I feel sometimes they're creating unnecessary targets for their back when... If they just explain their decision, I would imagine most fans would then go, okay, that's their rationale, they've explained it. But it's now two two weeks out of two where there's been contentious decisions and we haven't had any communications yep. about it. Firstly, last week, Danny Welbeck should have had the penalty. This week, should it have been a red card? Yes, it's more of a grey a gray area, but... Without that communication, we then don't get the consistency because we can't yeah. hold the refs to account as much. Yeah, and obviously it's a game including non-other 14 sides, but there was the incident in the Spurs-Chelsea game regarding Kukurele and the hair pull. Um, obviously, we're not going to get into that as it goes against what the pod's all about, but there's also those incidents as well. So they are in itself in terms of the start it's got off to at the start of this new campaign. Not particularly well, I would say. No, but as we said, Forrest will be absolutely over the moon. West Ham maybe should have taken their chances better. But to be honest, it's two games in and Forrest have got their first win and they're going to be absolutely over the moon for it. 
And I think West Ham can reflect on that and David Moyes can reflect on that going, we were a bit unlucky. The game could have been 3-1, 4-0. It could have been a lot different. So I don't think he has that much reason to be unhappy with the performance the team put out, just possibly disappointed with the result. Yep, absolutely. Um, you've mentioned, obviously, Forrest. It's been a chaotic start to the season, obviously, with the new signings that are coming in, sort of left, right and centre, that still keep coming in. I was going to say... Still don't have a sh- they Sorry. still don't have a shirt sponsor at yes. this point of the season. Also, later on in the pod, I'm going to go into the story of uh, Tabo Anyonyi uh, about um, his sort of up-and-comings um, and a little bit there on Stats Corner. Um, but then conversely, you've mentioned West Ham. It has been a tricky start for you. You know, it wasn't necessarily going to be the easiest game at City Ground because it's always going to be a bouncing place. Those fans are right behind the team and they acted a bit like the 12th uh, member of the team. It was going to be a tricky game and it turned out to be just that. You've gone into the season with nil point from two games, but like you said, I think now your season probably starts. I think I called it in our first episode where I said that West Ham could face three games and zero points from all three because up next they have Brighton at the London Stadium, which is very much their bogey team. And I don't think many West Ham fans will be counting the points yet because Brighton are a very good team and West Ham just don't seem to turn up against them. So this was probably the one game of the three that you go, they're most likely to get points and they were unlucky. I would say they're unlucky too. The Saints were going into Saturday's game against Leeds on the back of a bit of a humbling defeat in game week one. It didn't start well for them, but Leeds kind of fell apart and Jesse Marsh said it all in his post-match interview. When you're 2-0 up, you expect to win. Yep. The, again, another football cliche coming at you, Reese. Two-goal leads are always the most dangerous leads. And it showed. Yeah, Leeds will be disappointed with that. You know, going into the um, going into the game on the back of a, a really strong performance from match week one, they'll be looking to get two wins on the bounce um, against a very, very weak and... Are looking for a stronger performance Southampton side and going into a 2-0 lead they're looking like they're going to be all over them but Southampton did respond quite well I I felt defending at times wasn't always the best as we expect from this Southampton side at the moment it was a bit sixes and sevens but their ability to come back um, I thought was a testament uh, to one Hassan Hootl's uh, tactical nous and just their ability to to function a little bit as a team. So that is something for Southampton fans to sort of clutch onto a little bit, that there is that performance and their ability to sort of connect and synergize, as a word you've used previously in today's episode, um, to come back. Yeah, I think it says a lot about the character of a team to be 2-0 down and come back. But it also says a lot about <clears throat> the character of a team when you're 2-0 up and you do draw a game the way Leeds did. It will feel like... It will feel like a loss to them. I think going into the game, you'd say to Leeds, would you take one point? I think they would have perhaps been hesitant to because of the way Southampton have been playing recently and particularly at the end of last season and the fact they've not made additions. One point might have been the bare minimum Leeds fans would have expected and 2-0 up, everything was going to their game plan. But the draw, the draw is disappointing. After all, both teams will kind of settle for a point. The only thing with these two teams is, for me, they are two teams that will be 
definitely towards the bottom end of the Premier League table, just based on their squads and their performances. So a tool isn't really helping either of them. And I think other teams will look at those performances and go, well, we can beat them both. Yeah, I'm, I mean, yeah, I, I get that. We're still in game week two, so there is always the opportunity to improve and get on a bit of run of form. Form is absolutely everything for teams, especially down at the bottom of the table. Um, but at the moment, obviously, Leeds have got four points from six, from a possible six, uh, doing well. You know, they had to, I can't remember exactly when they had to wait for their first win, but they had to wait a long time last year before they got their first win on the board. So getting them in game week one was always going to be huge for them. Um, Southampton showed with Aribo coming on and Mara as well off the bench, the summer signing from Bordeaux. He looked really good, energetic, a lot of pers- purposefulness about his play, driven, got the assist. The through ball to Carl uh, Walker Peters that was a sensational bit of play. He looks a really quality signing for them. Aribo, I mentioned in the preview show about his ability that he's shown in the Scottish League and the SPL. And he's come on and looked very composed with the way he took his took his goal there. That's always something to look look at. Like we said, yep, yeah, strong reaction from the Saints after not only just what could have happened in the game itself, but after match week one as well, I think coming back from 2-0 down was such a strong reaction. So fair play to Hassan Hittle there and fair play to the whole squad as well. I, th- I thought it was um, a solid game, but obviously, you know, we're still talking about a couple of problems there, but um, a point at least is is something. Yeah, I think once again, they're off the mark. They're not sitting on zero. They're not in the relegation zone. So yeah, I think, and you're right. It's still early bit, doors. Exactly, it's early doors. I think there were some standout performers across both teams. I think Rodrigo getting both goals for Leeds last season wasn't his best and he had come in after a quite a large transfer fee. He didn't really do that much last season, but they're going to need his goals. And I think Bamford maybe went off again injured on Saturday, so they will need a striker who's scoring and yeah. getting that brace from Rodrigo... Um, Really good start for him. Yeah. With then Aribo, the composure for his goal, really, really good. The way he okay. he the way he toyed with the defense was really, really impressive. And then Mara's through ball, as you've mentioned, absolute quality, perfect pace on the ball to feed in Walker Peters and a great goal for them. So two all yeah. exciting game for as a prospect of watching from the neutral really good game to watch because you've had got two teams which aren't necessarily defending their best but able to score some goals and watching that comeback was really exciting to see so yeah as as a as a as a advertisement for the other 14 and how they play football and the sort of entertainment they bring it was up there with any other game this week yeah absolutely one last point from me obviously yeah rodrigo He's going to be so important for for Leeds going forward this campaign. He showed some instinctive finishing and his movement was was really good. If you look at the still frame for his second, I find that absolutely hilarious because it's the nod on to him at the back stick and he's basically just there waiting for the ball just to nod it in. There is absolutely no one marking him whatsoever and 
that's an element that I think Ralph will be disappointed with. But it's just a hilarious steal for him. If, if anyone can sort of uh, capture it, that'd be great. They'll be disappointed with the defending there, but I think Leeds will equally be disappointed with their defending as well. The way Aribo played with the defence for, um, yeah. for his goal. Both teams need to defend better if they're going to try and climb their way up the table because against much better teams, they'll get picked apart and will lose could lose quite heavily. And we know Southampton like losing at least one game a season quite significantly. So hopefully still, as we've said for most yes. of these teams, they've got two weeks left in the window. Let's see what business they can do. And going from a really exciting game to two games, which were, well, not one to write home about, were they? Brighton, Newcastle, nil-nil, and Wolves, Fulham, nil-nil. Um, let's take the Brighton, Newcastle game first. Brighton, on the back of a really strong start, were nowhere near as clinical as they were last week. And they looked like they probably should have won the game. Yep. Obviously, performance of the week last week, Brighton coming into the game on the back of what was an amazing result at Old Trafford. They started off strong. Again, we've seen that link-up play amongst the front line. Players were busy, felt like they were absolutely everywhere. But their chances, the chances that they had, they're just absolutely squandering them left, right and centre. And that is something that I think Brighton are going to desperately have to try and address. Potter's going to have to try and address that this campaign. Because you look at sort of last last season, how Brighton performed at home. They only managed to pick up five wins at, at the Amex last year. As opposed to their away... Sorry, what? Brighton only got... Only Brighton only managed to get five wins at the Amex last year and the average goal scored I think at home was just a tick over one something like that from what I've read yeah that actually if you look at sort of home stats uh, from the previous season Brighton if you just look at those 19 games played at home Brighton would only finish 16th in the league that year if it was just played at home shocking that there were worse teams than that yeah yeah, 100% so that is something that I think Graham Potts is going to have to look and trying to address trying to make the Amex a bit more of a fortress where they can actually emulate what they do on the road, but actually do it in front of their own fans. You know, I think that's the whole point, really. The whole point of your home games is that you play really well and then the away games, you might not necessarily play as as good. So Brighton are doing like the opposite. But it's working for them. Yeah. There's no denying that. They, they did play... They... Considering where they finished in the league last season, considering uh, considering they are so poor at home or were so poor at home, um, but it goes to show if they turned that home form around and kept up that away form, where would they end up? It would be exactly, exactly. So it's an um, to address exactly. And Newcastle didn't really didn't look sharp. Much, did didn't really have much of an effort. Pope was the staff and kept you know, kept Brighton out. I think based on last week, Newcastle would go going to the Amex. Will take a point. Um, obviously, not the prettiest game for their fans to travel all that way for. God, what a long no. journey that is! Um, but you know, I was listening. He's a Newcastle fan. Yeah, yeah. If you went to the game, you're mad. Um, but well done. Um, Pope, though, as you say, good. We said, we said about him it's a good signing he kept a clean sheet he was the one that earned the point for them and also Trippier with a good clearance off the line as well um which yeah. is which was really impressive and then the other nil nil Wolves Fulham I well Wolves huffed and they puffed but they couldn't <laughs> blow the house down they had 
so many opportunities. So many chances. It, you would have needed a blooming large abacus to count the amount of chances they squandered because there were blooming loads of them. Um, the amount of times the ball got played across the six-yard box, the amount of times that they had someone played in over the top or through, they missed so many good opportunities. They're going to be upset with that. Bruno Large is going to be upset with that performance because one point at home to a Fulham, a poor Fulham, wasn't good enough. And they were lucky to be walking away with one point in the end because that penalty very late on, well, we said for Fulham to stay in the Premier League, they're going to need Mitrovic to score. They did it last week and were able to fight out a good draw against Liverpool. But this week he misses a penalty and that is definitely two points lost at the death for Fulham. Yep, absolutely. Looking at Fulham, clearly dropping performance levels from the previous week. You know, the way they've played against Liverpool in comparison to how they've um, set up uh, against Wolves at Molyneux, there are streaks apart. Wolves, like you said, will be ridiculously disappointed with uh, only coming away with uh, one point out of that. Like you said, it could have been a lot less, but the way he... I'm really impressed with Podence. I thought he played really well. A lot of instinctive passes, a lot of sort of breaking up play. Laying on chances for Neto and Huang in the first half. Neither of them taking it. Just the lack of composure, man. It's just, is that going to cost Wolves this year? You know, Bruno Lago has come out and said that he's trying to put his... This year is going to be his opportunity to put his own sort of spin on the team. And the way they've started... As a Wolves fan, I'm not going to be that impressed if that's the only outset that, that, that I'm going to see. However, saying that, you know, Jose Sarr, in between the sticks for them, really impressive again. You know, he had to... He's come in... Uh, it's his second season um, after Rui Patricio. Season, yeah. Yeah. It's the second full season after Rui Patricio has left. He had a decent campaign last year and has got off to a strong start. You know, saving a penalty as a goalkeeper is just one of those that is going to give you such confidence boost. So that's a good thing. They were really looking at Fulham's sort of right-hand side as a, as a point of attack. Fulham on converse side are going to have to look to strengthen in that area because the amount of times that Wolves are in down that left-hand side were just, it was incredible. I couldn't believe it was nil-nil when I was, because I saw the result before I watched the highlights. And particularly there's one where Huang's played through and he's in acres of space and he just puts it straight at the keeper, which yeah. was interestingly not Leno. I don't really know what's um, what's gone on there, whether Leno was injured, but he wasn't in goal for Fulham. And considering he was their big signing um, yeah. of the window so far, not sure why he's not there. Right. And, but, you know, to be honest, the keeper, the keeper played well, the Fulham keeper, but he should have been picking the ball out of the net a couple of times based on the way Fulham were yep. defending. They really need to up their game if they're going to try and... Because they will come up against much more clinical teams that will turn all those chances and they'll be 3-0 down before they know it. Yep, exactly. And we're not even talking about big six sides here. We're talking about other 14 sides, teams that we've already mentioned on the pod already. You know, the likes of the Brentfords, the likes of the Brightons. Um, if Newcastle get off to a, a stronger start... They could really become unstuck. Um, there was a little bit of miscommunication between Rodak and uh, Adra Biyo. Obviously, you know, like we said, you know, dropping performance from the previous week, but uh, up against a team that you know might be on sort of similar level pegging, they're going to need to do so much better than that. Yeah, I think Fulham will be leaving Molyneux very happy with the one point. It possibly could have been zero. Uh, but it could have been three. It's really interesting how the game Wolves can Wolves should have scored loads. 
didn't, yeah. and then Fulham had the opportunity to do uh, classically snatch it right at the end. But football cliches, uh, football cliches. Um, that's what ninety percent of the podcast is. And now we've covered the weekend's action from game week two. We're off to stats corner. And welcome to Stats Corner. So, Stats Corner for this week. Um, this week is a little bit of a mix. So, there's a little bit of stats and there's also a little bit of history sort of um, going into it. This week, I'm going to look at Nottingham Forest. And Nottingham Forest are actually on the verge of breaking a Premier League record here. In terms of most money spent on players since promotion. Tell me about how Forrest are splashing their cash. So at the moment of recording, Forrest are pretty much on the verge of breaking the £100 million mark. And with the rumoured signings potentially coming of Mopé, of uh, Hassan Moir from uh, Lyon, and the potential, I think it's probably going to be another loan signing for James Garner from United. But there are some rumours that it could be a, a permanent signing. Um, there's a lot of sort of unrest in United camps about letting me go again. That sounds to me that it could be a permanent signing. Who knows? We've still got a couple of weeks left of the season to go. But at the moment, there are only two sides ahead of Forest at time of recording who have spent more in terms of newly promoted sides. Do you want to guess who the top side is? See, I remember there being a big deal made about when Villa got promoted with Dean Smith spending a lot of cash. My guy. Other than that, I remember Norwich last um, last summer spending a load of money, but I can't remember who else spent that much or that much significantly that would rival 100 million. So, again, as a note, as a footnote, it is at point of recording. However, there are only two other sides ahead of Forest who spent more money. Seconds would be the Fulham side from 1819. They spent a combined £102.1 million. Yes, <clears throat> I remember that. Because then I think like a week to go, they needed a whole new back four and spent a boatload of money. Hang on, was that the window where they signed Andre Schürrler? Oh, yes, it was. I think yeah. it was. I think you're right. Yeah. Good memory. Wow. Yeah, I remember that now. Shirley was in the Chelsea side, what, like 2013, 14, 15, around that sort of time. Then he went, he went off to, to Germany. He went off to Germany for a bit. And I think that was back, one of their, yeah. is their like trademark uh, or like their big headline signing was Andre Schurler, World Cup winner. Yeah. And um, yeah, well, it didn't really work out for them, did it? Although he did, um, I remember him scoring one wonderful goal. He did score did a massively wonderful. I can't remember who it was against, but I do remember that it was an exciting and I did get excited by it. And knowledge that man, Aston Villa. I'm trying to remember who they actually signed in that window because I can't even remember who Villa bought in that window other than Martinez. So they spent £134.1 million that summer. <laughs> um, <laughs> they bought in the likes of, or rather they made... They had some loanees from the previous season, so they made permanent signings of Tyrone Minks and Anwar El Ghazi. Okay. Then the more significant outlay of cash went to the likes of Wesley, Douglas Louise, and Matt Target. So those are the two ahead of Forrest, but like we said, Forrest at time recording have only just tipped over the £100 million mark, and with the players that they are rumoured to sign, 
in the in the coming weeks because at the moment they've brought in 16, 16 new faces have come into the city ground as far as I have from the sources that I've looked at they have brought in 16 new faces is that is that including players returning from loan or is that just out and out it could be both I could take it but still I think it's a mixture of both that, but still 16 new faces that's, that's a huge amount um how uh, I do know that their owner loves spending money. Unfortunately, I do think he also likes signing checks for severance packages as well. So that's why Cooper needs to be on his toes. Yeah. So on another case, so as part of Stats Corner, does spending money always mean a successful season for a newly promoted club? And by successful season, we basically mean survival. Oh, so, that's interesting. It's actually higher than I was expecting because I expect, you know, when some teams spend that cash, you sort of sometimes get the feeling that they are disrupting the chemistry of the side, especially with bringing in so many new faces that it doesn't necessarily always work. However, eight of 11 teams that have spent the most money in their first season back in the Prem, and it could be potentially nine out of 12 if Forest do survive. Um, but those teams have actually survived in the Prem, and four of them are still in the Prem today. Oh, wow. There is also something else to be said about um, new faces, and I'm desperate, desperate, desperate to find some form of link uh, about how many or which side is, in terms of number of incomings, the record for number of incomings, because 16 potentially going up to 19 sounds a bit of a record to me. Or most faces coming in in a in a window, yeah. in one single window. That it's one of those that is absolutely staggering. How many players you can, um, how many players you can get through the door and try and hold any sort of first like squad unity together? Because those relate all those dynamics and relationships within the squad can be so fragile. We've just sung the praises of. Brentford and the week before Brighton about how close all their squads are. You can't tell me all those 16 players are going to come along and be best friends and know how to work with each other. That's a huge task. To me, it seems like the owner wants to sign players to show that he's making an effort rather than... Because you can't tell me Cooper, after getting promoted, would have gone, you know what I need? 16 new players in my squad. Forrest coming up last season, I've sort of touched on it previously, whether or not it might have been a season too early for them. The squad that they had coming up definitely wasn't ready for the Prem, I don't think. So they they needed to come out and and make some signings. Like everyone else, I don't think we were expecting 16 or sort of double figures, um, but at least some new faces coming to the club that are going to come in with a little bit of Premier League experience and just aid... Forest into this return, this heroic return back into the um, into the Premier League. You know, not been there since the nineties. Steve Cooper was probably not expecting the numbers that he's that he's had, and it just sounds that what's happening in the background of the club uh, right now is a little bit chaotic. Um, there's a bit of sort of to and fro in, and like we've mentioned previously, the inability to get a shirt sponsor on the front. I don't know the exact details of that, but Forrest haven't uh, without a shirt sponsor uh, for the um, opening games of the Premier League season. That just seems a little bit odd to me. From what I've read about the shirt sponsor is that the club, or maybe the owner, I don't know, um, 
has a figure in mind of how much he thinks the club should be getting for a shirt sponsor and no one has offered them that amount of money yet. So they've had offers, but he's turned them all down because he thinks the shirt sponsorship that they're offering is worth more than what the market is prepared to give him at the moment. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Also, as for their nearing on a hundred million that they're um they've spent so far, gee, a hundred million. Um would the does that figure include anything like, well, they've signed Jesse Lingard on a free, and it's my understanding that he would have got a large one off payment to initially join them. Is that included in that? Because then there might be some there might be some additional spending that because they're not club to club transfers, they not might not be recorded in the same way. While you can go, oh, they're spending X amount on Uari from Leon, um, or they've bid know, 20 million for Malpai, something like 15, 20 million for Malpai. I think 15, 20 million, yes, for the figures yeah. I'm talking about. So, yeah. well, but then say there's other players if they're getting free agents, but 100 million, that's, that's bonkers. It's an insane amount of money, right? Yeah. But I think there's also a lot to be said because transfer fees have gone up in the last couple of seasons we've we've seen the, the gradual increase of hostings uh for transfers so the previous four teams that have spent the most amount of money uh who've been newly promoted coming up and spending that uh, obviously the, the these incredible amounts of money all of them have been promoted within the last four years or so so you're looking at Wolves, you're looking at Leeds, uh, Fulham and Villa all been promoted. Obviously, Fulham did go down the same season that they spent the amount of money that they did. Um, however, all of them are up in the Premier League right now. So there is that sort of gradual shift in transfer uh, spending patterns that we're obviously seeing. It would be good to see, obviously, how the spending of those teams that spent a lot to stay up compared to then the spend in the rest of the league. Because I think a lot of teams this season, apart from actually Southampton and Leicester, yeah, have, there has been a large amount of money spent so far by teams. And is it a case of Forest are out, just outspending previous teams that have been promoted? Or actually, they've got more of a gap in terms of spending to catch up with the teams and how they're all spending. And is the market that bit much more competitive? Because I think teams... Over the last few windows, we were maybe hesitant to spend as much because uh, that they had shortcomings in income due to COVID. Yeah, but there are teams spending huge amounts of money. If you just look at the money Brighton have got in for Cucurella, fifty-five million. Uh, the fee being banded about for Fafana, possibly eighty million. Um, Anthony Gordon, forty million. Anthony Gordon, forty million. Give Everton forty million and give him forty quid for a haircut, please. But. Is it a case of Forest are just having to do that to catch up? Because as you said, they their squad was significantly weaker and they were almost a bit fortunate to get promoted, but still played well enough to get promoted. They earned their spot. But just to get Premier League level players or players that are competitive or just have some Premier League experience, is yeah. there just more of a premium on that now than there has been in before? But looking at the signings they're looking to bring in, Malpai? Would be a good a good signing for them, but they had just signed, uh, had just spent a club record fee on a striker, so it seems weird that they've um, then might be looking at Malpai, and then but, yeah. the big coup would be for Oari from Leon, who go back a couple of seasons was linked to no disrespect to Forest fans, but 
bigger Premier League teams with more Premier League yeah, experience. consistently linked uh, to the likes of Arsenal. Mm. Yeah, Mope again, um, consistent Premier League goal scorer. He's not you know, going to go out and bang 20 goals a season, but he came up with some crucial goals for, for Brighton last year. And we've previously mentioned already that Brighton weren't necessarily biggest goal scorers. So then the looks on why are Brighton looking to go or move on from Mope, but he's into the last season of his contract. So there is the potential to get him on a cheap um, and never say no to bringing in players who have experience and scoring goals in the Premier League. I think for a team like Forest, that is going to be gold dust for them. Absolutely. And looking at their finishing on Sunday, um, they could probably do with a striker who is maybe a little bit better than what they've got, or at least has the experience to be playing in the league. Thank you very much for that insight, Tom. It does lead me nicely on to, obviously, this being the 30th year of the Premier League. It has been 30 years since uh, Teddy Sheringham scored uh, the winner uh, against Liverpool for Forest in the first ever Premier League televised game. However, it wasn't the first ever Premier League goal scored. What was that race? I do actually know this because it's been talked about so much. Um, it was Brian Dean. Um, yeah, I was aware of Brian Dean um, because it is great pub quiz trivia knowledge. Great um, pub quiz trivia knowledge, yeah, absolutely. Sheringham got the first televised Premier League goal. First wow. televised goal. What a legend to get Liverpool. it. And how cyclical or how sort of weird this has worked. So Awaniyi, um has scored, obviously, at the weekend, Forrest's first goal back in the Prem for 23 years. An ex-Liverpool player who was signed for Liverpool back in 2015 after performing quite well in the under-20s World Cup for Nigeria, was then sent on loan seven times uh, during his spell at Liverpool, was... I don't think he played a single game for the Reds at all. Talent for the then, future. Exactly. Klopp absolutely loved him, clearly. Then had several spells in Bundesliga, was uh, an instrumental part of the Union Berlin side last year, scoring, I think it was 20 goals in 43 appearances. So clearly a good goal getter. And I think it was about one of his only decent loan spells that he had at the time. And obviously that move then made permanent last year, I think it was. So Forrest have obviously seen, seen something in him, so I've brought him in. But it's quite humble beginnings from him. If you look into his story, it's actually quite, like I said, quite humbling. He used to, as a child, go to training with boots that he would sew up on his own, arrive at training with all the tools that he needed, just in case his boots sort of, I don't know, ripped or broke down or whatnot, to actually repair them. So, you know, seeing him... From very sort of humble beginnings through the ups and downs of a, a turbulent start to his career, let's say, with multiple loan moves in and out from a big one of the big six, and now coming into one of the other 14 teams and scoring their first ever goal back in the Prem for 23 years, you know, that is what we love to see. So can one, are when he sort of consistently score for Forest this year, and can he emulate the likes of other African, sort of other 14 alumni, the likes of Sadio Mane for, for Southampton? Can he have that impact at Forest? That's one thing, I think. And out from the outside, looking in, I'm going to really be excited about looking at uh, for Forest this year. Absolutely. And I suppose when you sign a big transfer record-breaking signing for your club, like uh, Forest spent on him, 
the fans have every reason to be excited. Thank you very much for that heartwarming story in Stats Corner. And next up, our goal of the week. Goal of the week. So this week with goal of the week, Tom, please jump in with any shouts um, that you've... I'm bueno. Oh, wow. You did jump in there. Um, maybe we should look at some other good goals of the week before we go on to Mbwemo, which I think is probably going to be one of the most viewed goals of the week. We've already discussed Aribo's goal. Great composure for Southampton to get that first goal back against Leeds. The Mara through ball for Walker-Peters against Leeds again for the Saints was really good. And then and Villa's two goals against Everton. I think the first one, Ings took it very well on the turn. Left-footed effort, really clean hit. Great strike to beat Pickford. And then Buendia's goal, also very good. The way he carried the ball into the final third and then the finish was really good as well. Really good 1-2 on the edge of the box with Watkins. Really left a lot to be desired from the Everton defence. Um, interestingly, about Danny Ings' goal is that he has now scored against Everton for four different Premier League teams. He scored against them with his stint at Burnley, Liverpool, Southampton and now Villa. So remarkable that he can score so much against one team he obviously when the fixtures are announced at the start of the season he clearly goes through them with a highlighter and finds Everton and gets ready for just that game and the other goal from the Villa Everton game that is worth noting uh, wasn't a contender for goal of the week but Luca Digne's own goal is quite remarkable in that he has now scored an own goal for Everton while playing for Villa and he has also scored an own goal for Villa while playing for Everton at his stint there. So quite, quite clearly, he's very confused by what team he's actually playing for. Um, although I'm not sure there's a great deal he could have done about the own goal that he scored at the weekend. But Tom, you said it early on. You jumped in quickly with it. Your goal of the week is? Mine's definitely in Buomo, but... You know, I, I think there are some, obviously, the special medicines that you, you've made already, some really sort of class build-up play. Yep, Aribo, obviously we've mentioned Aribo's uh, composure uh, previously, and Mara's through ball to Carl Walker-Peters, again, some really quality build-up play. But I think from, from an other full-team podcast point of view, the Mbwemo goal against United pretty much sums up what this pod is all about. Build-up play from the back, one long ball up, to Tony, takes it first time, passes it into Mbwemo, and Mbwemo, so calm, so cool, slots it past De Gea as if, you know, he's not suddenly thinking, I'm about to put Brentford 4-0 up against Manchester United after the 35th minute. The community season was buzzy and there were limbs everywhere. Brentford 4, Manchester United 0 limbs. It's all I can say. It, it just sums up what we want to see in other 14 clashes against the big six. Absolutely. Quality goal. Well done, Mboimai. And so, Tom, I don't think we can go much further for performance of the week than Brentford again. They were fantastic. Four goals in 35 minutes. And I think one of the, obviously, scoring four goals was incredible. But also for me, the way they just held out throughout the rest of the game didn't really ever look like they were going to concede, didn't ever look in too much danger, limited Manu to a very few number of poor chances. Um, 
great performance. Yeah, fantastic performance. Uh, not really much else that we can say about Brentford that hasn't already been said on today's show. Just fantastic performance. Well done, Brentford. So, Tom, tell us what games do we have to look forward to for the other 14 next game week? So, the fixtures for match week three of the Premier League 22-23 season. We have Spurs host Wolves. We've got Crystal Palace hosting Villa. Forest go to Goodison against Everton. It's Fulham versus Brentford. Leicester take on Southampton. Bournemouth versus Arsenal. It'll be Leeds versus Chelsea. West Ham versus Brighton. And it's Newcastle going up against Manchester City. So I think there are a lot of games to be interested in uh, in this game week. Brighton have had a good start to the season, then going to the London Stadium, which is a ground where they've only ever got points. Newcastle hosting Man City will have a lot of eyes on it just because of the nature of both their ownerships. Yep. And for me, one that will be really interesting to watch is Forrest going to Goodison because Everton aren't in a good place and Forrest will Forrest get a result there. Forrest will be looking to back up one win with another, get that train rolling, and it's another three points notched out of the 40 that they need to stay up. So that will be a really exciting game. And Tom, we've decided that to create a little bit of competition between us both, Yep, we're going to do a Fab Four predictions. This is no way a replica or copy or cheap ripoff of the Super 6 provided by Sky. This Absolutely is instead not. a other 14 Fab Four. So we have selected four games this game week for us to predict here and now. We've got Palace versus Villa, Everton v Forest, Leicester v Southampton and West Ham Brighton as our four games. So Palace v Villa, how do you think this is going to go? I think Villa will be spurred on from their performance um, at home this week up against uh, Everton. And Palace, conversely, will be looking about how they responded in the uh, second half against Arsenal. So at the moment, I think probably two evenly matched sides. I'm going to go for a tool draw. Oh, that's quite interesting. So I think that I don't think Villa were good against Everton, but Everton were worse. But I think for some reason I've just got a hunch that Villa are going to do it. I think this is the sort of game that Coutinho will turn up in. This is the sort of team where he thrives on playing well and beating. So I think there's a chance he'll have a good game there. So I'm going to put uh, Villa to get a 2-0 win. Fair enough. And we've just mentioned them about being not very good and Forrest visiting them. What do you think the score's going to be there when Frank Lampard, Walker, Steve Cooper and his many, 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 many transfers... Um, obviously all 16 new faces plus the 11 that are already on the pitch probably will not play a cup against Everton for obvious reasons I think the more concern is will they fit in the Goodison dressing room but I think we have two defences that not the greatest in the Premier League at this uh, at this uh, moment in time so I'm expecting a little bit of an actual high scoring fixture I am going to go for a five goal thriller Everton taking it three goals to two that is a big prediction there. But I I completely follow your logic. I can't go with the same result because that's boring. But Everton v Forest, I don't see Everton getting better, but I feel Forest can continue an okay start. So I think it'll be 2-1 Forest. Ooh. Okay, Leicester Southampton with the Vestergaard derby. 
where do you think this is going to go? Where Who's getting the three points? Again, it, it's two teams that are going in the direction that are just not entirely short. It's two defences that are leaking goals. But I am going to go for a point apiece here. I am looking at a Leicester 2, Saints 2 draw. Oh, see, I, on the other hand, I just don't see Southampton being that good. Leicester at home, King Power. They started okay there so far. They've been scoring goals. They did concede two after being two up against Brentford. They did, but Brentford's forward line is much better than Southampton's at the moment. So I'm I'm saying Leicester are going to win that 1-0. And then West Ham Brighton. So how many are you putting Brighton to be winning by? I think you'll be delighted to hear that I'm not seeing Brian win this one. I think Moyes will get his boys up um, for this one. Absolutely. He's going to need the three points on the board to get West Ham season up and running. To do it against the bogey side as well will require a lot. But I think with the way Brian have started, trying try and replicate it for three games in a row, I'm not, not entirely sure that it can be done, but I'm always willing to be sort of proven wrong. I am going for a West Ham 2, Brighton 1 result. And I am going for Brighton 2, West Ham 0. And we'll see how we get on in game week three. Tom, as you know, we're fairly new to this podcasting thing, but you'll be very impressed to know that we have already established an international audience. So we, we have. So, so far, we have listeners in San Francisco, Brussels and Dubai. We are we are reaching all the continents ish. We just this is what it's all about. Exactly. I'm glad that the positivity of the other fourteen can spread around the world. We talk about the Premier League being the most marketable league in the world, and we talk about how the big six are the teams that capture that international audience most. I'd like to think that we're creating a bit of positivity for the other fourteen, a bit of hope and latching onto that international market for our other 14 teams. And we do also have a question from one of our international listeners that came into our inbox. We did. So uh, if you would like to submit your own question to the podcast, it is the other 14 pod at gmail.com. That's the other 14 pod at gmail.com. So Tom, I'll let you field this question first. It's from Jackson in Dubai. And he asked, with Manchester United's current poor performances, will we be expanding and rebranding to calling our podcast The Other 15 Pod? No, because The Other 14 has such a ring as opposed to The Other 15. <laughs> I I, th- I think you're right. We're not going to be changing it. And also, I don't feel yet Manchester United fans have felt what it's like to be fully a member of the other 14 and supporting a team that has very little chance of winning winning anything. Admittedly, they've not won anything too much recently. Um, But also, we'll maybe consider it at the end of the season. But looking at the current Premier League table, Manchester United might not even be in the 20 of the Premier League, let alone being able to have a viable uh, application to the other 14. So, Jackson, thank you very much for that question. I'm sure there's some Um, EFL pods out there as well. I'm sure. Um, I believe that uh, the BBC do a really good podcast um, called the 72 Plus Podcast, which talks all about um, the championship and below. So, Jackson, 
it might be your podcast to go to come the end of the season. But for now, thank you for asking this question. I'm sure we'll be asked it many times this season, given how well our teams are performing against Manchester United. But they are for now considered one of the big six. It's hard to say that with a straight face. And they will not be joining the other 14. So that's it for episode three of the other 14 podcasts. We've got a great game week to look forward to in game week three coming up. If you want to get in contact with the show, please email us at theother14pod at gmail.com and do tweet us with any messages or questions at other14podcast. We are now available also on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as any other good podcast platforms. So if you do enjoy this podcast, please do encourage all your friends and family to listen and please rate us and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. So we've had game week two of the Premier League, 36 more to go. Tom, thank you for joining me on the Other 14 podcast. Thank you for having me, Reese. Always a pleasure.